before we can start church history, we need to look into the, what the world looked like when Jesus was born. To do this, we need to study the silent years. This is a fascinating time of history, and it falls between the Old and New Testament. We could do a whole book series on just this time period, and perhaps I will in the future. But for today, here's a quick version of what happened during the silent years. You remember from the story of Daniel, Judah was taken captive by Babylon. After Babylon, the Persians took control, and this is the story of Esther, and the king of Persia allowed the Jews to return to the promised land. This is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Persian controlled most of the known world at the time. They were really undefeatable. But then Alexander the Great showed up. He was a young Greek who quickly took over most of the known world. Alexander the Great died suddenly, and because he had no children, his land was divided into four and given to his four head generals. Two of those areas were at constant war, and Judea was caught between these two warring people. Finally, a leader who came into place who was actually more evil than even Hitler. His name was Antichus. He hated the Jews, and specifically the Jews that followed God. He ended the sacrifices in the temple, and he set up an idol of Zeus, who just happened to look exactly like him. He set up this idol in the temple. He also killed 40,000 Jews in just one day and took 40,000 Jews as slave. His rules were harsh, and the Maccabees rose up against him, fought, and won. And for the first time since the beginning of the book of Daniel, the Jews were free. The Maccabees ruled Judah both spiritually and physically. Their descendants became corrupt, and the final descendant killed hundreds of priests. When his wife died, she became queen, and Queen Salome Alexandria loved God and wanted to serve him. Under her reign, God blessed the nation. There's a story told by Jews that when Salome Alexandria was queen, it rained every Sabbath and was sunny the rest of the week. It was a glorious time. When Salome Alexandria died, her two sons fought for leadership. This led to a civil war. And during this civil war, Rome stepped in and took control. The Bible says when the fullness of time was come, Jesus was born. And look at what was ready for the church at this time. The rule by Greece had given everyone a common language and culture, though there were most people understood, or at least they could find someone to translate from Greek. Even today, we have elements of this Greek culture in our world. During the time of the early church, that culture was still very strong and present in many different countries. The idea of the Greek language and culture was controversial to the Jewish people. The Pharisees were a group that did not want this culture. And those who followed the Pharisees would have tried to live and speak in traditional ways. The Sadducees were a group that believed it was the right thing to do to just embrace the Greek culture and language and only follow some of the Jewish traditions. The rule of the Romans had created roads and transportation. As the Old Testament closed, it's very difficult to travel from country to country. However, Romans changed all of this. This was an important thing for the church because the persecuted church began traveling and moving quickly. As the New Testament opens, we see two characters, Simon and Anna. Both worked in the temple. Both were told by God they would not die until they saw the Messiah. Simon and Anna would have been alive during the life of Queen Alexandria. Both of these people could have watched the world change around them and become prepared for the Messiah. 
Today we need to remember that Jesus said he would be coming again. And as we study church history, we'll watch the world change and prepare again for the fullness of time when Jesus will return. I'm going to divide church history into seven sections. And we're going to jump into the first section here, the early church. The Jews lived in fear. Once they'd been a powerful nation, a nation people did not want to go to war against. They had been feared, but now they live in fear. Romans had made sure that they lived in fear. There was public executions. Those were common and took hours, even days to finish. Roman soldiers were to be obeyed at all times. But in that fear was hope. There was hope that the Messiah was going to come. There was the Lion of Judah that would come and rule the whole world. And he was going to come through the line of the greatest king Israel had ever known, David. Once the Messiah came, he would fight and kill the Romans, and the people of Israel would once again be the nation people feared. For most of the Jewish people, they knew nothing but fear. They had been born under the Roman rule and had never been free. For the very few older Jewish people who had lived under the rule of Queen Alexandria, there was the memory of a time when Israel was free and the Jewish people had lived in peace and prosperity. Two of those people worked in the temple, Anna and Simon. God had promised both that they would not die until their eyes saw the Messiah. This brought hope the Roman rule would end soon. The temple where Anna and Simon worked was significant. It was the second temple the Israelites had built. God himself had resigned in the tabernacle, a tent made for him. But Solomon, King David's son, had built a temple for God. It was so magnificent that kings and queens came from all around the world to see it. And then it had been destroyed. So Rubabel had rebuilt it on the same location. But on the day of dedication, people wept. They were not tears of joy, but tears of pain. The temple could not be compared to the magnificent temple that Solomon had built. Wars had been fought over this temple. Antichus had entered the temple and set up an idol to Zeus. And under his rule, prostitutes had worked in the temple. The Maccabees had fought back and freed Israel and cleansed the temple. But their descendants would also disgrace the temple. One of their descendants committed mass murder in the temple when the Jewish people were angry that he had not followed the laws of God while he sacrificed in the temple. He had murdered many of them because they were trying to force him to follow the laws of God. Queen Alexandria had cleansed the temple. When Rome took control of Israel, they placed Herod in charge of Israel. The Jewish people were not happy. Normally, when Rome would take control of a country, they would appoint a person from inside that country to rule over them. Herod was not a Jew. He ritually made himself a Jew and then claimed to be Jew by religion. But the Jewish people did not fall for it. The Jewish people were extremely angry about this, and Herod wanted to keep his job, so he offered the Jewish people a bribe. He would rebuild the temple. It would be as great as Solomon's temple. So the work began, and as our story opens, the temple is still being built. The high priest in the temple was also appointed by Rome. This means Rome had control over both the government and the religious aspects of the Jewish people. The high priest was corrupt, and they used the temple and the sacrifices as a way to line their own pockets and, became, and become rich. 
In the temple were two different groups of people, the Sadducees, which were more of a political force and didn't even believe in the Torah, the resurrection, or the coming Messiah. And the Pharisees was a religious group who believed that the Messiah would come once all of Israel returned to the law of the Lord. The two groups fought regularly. The Sadducees wanted to please Rome, and the Pharisees wanted everyone to follow the rules God had made and also the hundreds of laws they had added. Here in the temple that was still being rebuilt, Anna and Simon were working, waiting for the Messiah that was going to free them from Rome. Free them. And then here in this temple, he would set up his kingdom and rule. In a small town of Nazareth lived a poor girl. She was not one that stood out to the crowd. She was not one of any importance. But God saw her. And when the time was perfect, God used this young, unknown girl to bring himself into the world. One day an angel appeared to Mary, a simple sentence, but think about what that means. An angel appeared to her. The Bible says the first thing the angel said was, don't be afraid. It would, of course, be a terrifying thing. Imagine being a simple poor girl from a small town that no one thought was significant. You're living your life when suddenly an angel appears to you. What does that even mean? How did the angel appear? The Bible doesn't tell us much except that we are told she was afraid. The angel tells her that she has found favor with God. God was going to use Mary to bring the Messiah into the world. She would become pregnant, but she would be a virgin. This didn't just affect Mary. Joseph was also involved in this whole situation. He was planning to marry Mary. That means he was working on building their home and getting it ready for their life together. If Mary was pregnant and he knew it wasn't from him, that would mean Mary was not faithful. Before Mary told Joseph, she went to visit her cousin. Elizabeth was pretty old and she had not had a child, but now she was pregnant. But the circumstances around her birth were confusing. But now Mary had a similar experience and she knew Elizabeth would be the person to talk to. Elizabeth lived in Hebron and Mary traveled to see her. Once she arrived, Elizabeth ran to see her and hugged her young cousin. Immediately, Elizabeth's baby began to jump in her womb. Elizabeth pulled back from Mary and looked at her. Mary didn't have to tell her anything. Elizabeth knew. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. What an honor that the mother of the Lord should visit me. Elizabeth and Mary sat together and talked about what had happened to them. Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, was in the home. He sat and listened but said nothing because God had taken his voice away. Zacharias was a priest, and it was his job to make sacrifices to God. While making sacrifices to God, he was told by an angel that his wife would have a child. This child would be called John. Zacchaeus argued with the angel, and that's an interesting thing to think about. I would assume if an angel came and spoke to me, I wouldn't want to argue. But Zacharias said Elizabeth was too old to have a child. So God took his voice from him, and it would not return until baby John was born. So now sitting in this room, Mary and Elizabeth exchange stories and Zacharias listens. Eventually, it is time for Mary to return. She must face Joseph and tell him what has happened. Joseph obviously doesn't believe the story, but he loves her. He doesn't want to hurt her. He decides he's going to do a private divorce so that she won't be publicly shamed. Before Joseph can do that, he's also visited by an angel and this time in his dream. An angel tells him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. She has been faithful to him. The baby is sent by God. So Joseph and Mary do get married. 
They move into a little home he has prepared. Joseph works as a carpenter and they start their life together. However, Joseph and Mary sleep separately. Although they are married, Joseph will not have sexual relationships with Mary until the child is born. Then the Romans show up. A new law has been passed. The Romans want everyone to go back to the place where they were born. They want a more accurate census. Everyone has to register with their hometown. And taxes are going up and the Romans want to make sure they don't miss anyone. So Joseph and Mary have to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem. They are from the family of David and must register with the Roman government in that town. The problem is Mary is about to give birth, so traveling that long distance is very hard. They arrive in Bethlehem. The town is very small and even more insignificant than Nazareth. Mary and Joseph are not the only ones in this small town. The Romans are here setting up the census, and other Jewish people have come for the same reason. It's night, and Mary is starting to have contractions. The baby is coming, but the small town doesn't have an abundance of inns, and the inn that they do have is full. The innkeeper tells them they can stay in the barn, so at least they're out of the cold, and hopefully in the morning they can find a place to stay. But that night, Jesus is born. The Messiah everyone has been waiting for enters the world. His parents are poor and insignificant. The town is small and insignificant, and he's in a barn. It's not exactly the triumphant entry people were expecting. Bethlehem was a small town and a poor town, and outside of the town on a hill were people so insignificant they didn't even have to be counted in the census. On the hill were shepherds. This was the time, this was at that time the lowest job anyone could have. But on this hill, on that night, God wanted the world to know what had happened, so he picked the person no one else saw as his messenger. Have you ever wondered what the choirs in heaven sound like? Well, one night, those angels had a private concert for a few men on a hill, and they came with this message. Do not be afraid, for behold, I have good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. The angels then sang to the shepherds and then suddenly left. The shepherds ran to find the child, and they found him where the angels had said he would be. They worshipped him and then ran to tell everyone they could what had happened. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. He's only a few days old. And here, as a newborn, he is introduced to Simon and Anna. They know who he is, and they worship him. The Bible doesn't tell us much else about Jesus as a baby, but we learn about a dramatic story when Jesus would have been about a year and a half. Wise men from the East come to see Jesus. There's different stories about these wise men, who they are, and what's meant by the East. There's many very interesting theories about this, but what we do know is they followed a star to the place where Jesus was. And we know that they knew a great king had been born. The wise men, of course, went to Herod. A great king was born. Of course, he would be born in a palace. That would be the obvious place to look. Herod, of course, has no idea what these wise men are talking about. He asks his friends from the temple to find out what these wise men are talking about. The Pharisees and Sadducees tell Herod that the prophecy of a great king, the Messiah, would rule the world. Herod is surprised and nervous. He tells the wise men to find this child and then let Herod know where he is. Herod, who of course has claimed to have converted to Judaism, is building a great temple. He, of course, wants to worship this child. 
But Herod has other plans. The temple he's building is not for God. The temple he's building is simply a bribe so the Jewish people won't revolt against him. He doesn't want to worship God. And if this child is supposed to be a great king who rules the world, then he must kill him now while he's just a child. The wise men find Mary and Joseph. They worship Jesus and give him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But that night while they're sleeping, an angel appears to them and tells them not to return to Herod. Herod doesn't want to worship the child. He wants to kill him. The wise men leave and return to, well, the east or wherever they're from. Herod's angry when he learns they have not returned to tell him where to find the child. So he orders every child under the age of two killed. Before this vile act can be carried out, Joseph is warmed in a dream and escapes at night with Mary and Jesus. Herod then becomes very sick. He begins to itch over his entire body. His intestines become painful. He has a hard time breathing. His arms and feet begin to have convulsions. And even his genitalia become infected with gangrene. The pain becomes so intense he tries to kill himself, but is stopped by his cousin. In the end, the disease kills him. And after his death, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus return. There's one other story from Jesus' childhood that we know. At the age of 12, Jesus travels with his family to the temple. It would have still been under construction at this time, but for the grandness of the temple, it would have still been somewhat of an awe for everyone. When Mary and Joseph start the trip home, they realize they don't know where Jesus is. They search for him first amongst the other children, and then they begin to panic. Remember, this is a dangerous time for Jewish people. They find him in the temple talking to the teachers. He's asking questions and he's answering questions. The teachers are shocked by how much this young boy knows and understands about the scriptures. Mary and Joseph are upset with him. They've been looking for him for a long time. Jesus answers, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I would be here in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. The Bible says Mary put all of these things into her heart. We know nothing else about, about Jesus' childhood. Before we jump into Jesus' life, we need to understand the concept of God's holiness. Holy in its simplest definition is set apart. It's set apart from others and it's pure. God is holy. He's set apart from others. It is God's holiness and goodness that is both wonderful and dangerous. God's holiness is described in the Bible often as fire, and that's a good representation. Fire is both wonderful and dangerous. It keeps us warm and gives us light, but if we're too close to the fire, it will burn us. The Old Testament tells us that we can only be in God's presence if we are pure. The law demands two kinds of purity. We need to be morally pure and ritually pure. Some people, when they read the Old Testament, are confused because they don't understand the difference between these two. In the Old Testament, we have the story of Moses. He sees a bush that is on fire but not burning up. As he approaches it, he's told to take off his shoes. He's on holy ground. Now, God is not saying that wearing shoes is a sin. He's not here asking Moses to be morally pure, but ritually pure. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, God gave him the task of building a tabernacle. In that tabernacle was a room, the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. In this place, God's glory, God's holiness would be. And as they traveled, a pillar of fire was hovering over top of the Holy of Holies. 
When Solomon built the first temple, that same room was made again. To enter this room and to be in God's presence, the holy priest had to be both morally pure and ritually pure. The idea of being ritually pure is this. Anything you touch that is unclean defiles you. And you are now unclean because you touched it. This would be things like dead bodies, sickness, disease, some animals. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we have a different story. Isaiah is in the temple. He knows he's not pure. He knows the danger. He's close to the fire and he's going to die. But an angel comes, takes a coal from the altar, and touches the lips of Isaiah. Instead of the uncleanness of Isaiah infecting the coal, the holiness of the coal is passed to Isaiah. This is different. Ezekiel has a vision. He's standing next to the temple and he sees water leaking out of the temple. The water starts to flow and then it turns into a river and the river then grows and everything it touches comes to life. In his vision, God's holiness leaves the temple and flows into the world. Instead of the uncleanness of the world infecting the water, the water cleanses and purifies the world. And now we have the adult life of Jesus. Jesus starts picking his team. He picks fishermen and tax collectors, businessmen, tradesmen. They follow him and at first not knowing who they are following, but knowing something is going to happen. What we see is that Jesus is God. He is the water that has left the Holy of Holies and is now come to earth. Jesus touches the dead and they come back to life. He touches the lame and they walk. But there's so much more. He forgives sin. He teaches the gospel. He feeds thousands of people with a small lunch. He walks on water. He tells the wind to stop and it listens. He tells them the kingdom of God is at hand. But it's like a tiny mustard seed. It must be planted in the ground and then it will grow. Tiny at first and then into a great plant. The Sadducees and Pharisees are not happy. The Sadducees are worried about the politics of all of this. What will the Romans think? Will this man make the Romans crack down on the Jewish people? The Pharisees are convinced Jesus is blaspheming God. While Jesus never comes right out and says, I am God and demands people worship me, he clearly is saying he is God. He tells people their sins are forgiven. At one point, people confront Jesus. He's talking about Abraham as if he has seen him. People begin to mock Jesus. They say, Jesus, you're less than 50 years old, but you were here when, when Abraham was alive? Jesus answers, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. The Pharisees know this is Jesus claiming to be God. They are angry and they want him gone. But not all the Pharisees feel this way. Some have been waiting for the Messiah and in their hearts, they allow the question, could it be, could Jesus be the one they've been waiting for? Then it was Passover time. The Jewish people travel from all around to come to Jerusalem for this celebration. It's the time to remember how God had freed them from the Egyptians. They call the celebration Passover because of the 10 plagues. You see, God sent plagues to eat to the Egyptians as a way of convincing them to allow the Jews to be free. Each one was worse than the last. The final plague was the most devastating. The angel of death came at night and the firstborn in each home died. Only those with the blood of a perfect lamb on the doorpost of their home were safe. The angel of the death passed over their home. As the Jewish people celebrate this amazing event, they're probably praying for another miracle, freedom from the Romans, who are now the ones controlling them. 
What they don't know is that celebrating with them is the king of kings, the one who will rescue them not from the Romans, but from Satan himself. But there are many people in the crowd who were hoping to see Jesus. They believed he would be the one to rise up and be a great warrior and fight the Romans and free them. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he enters riding on a donkey. A huge crowd, a huge crowd begin to sing and shout. The children who were there for this great celebration are the most excited to see Jesus. They grab palm branches and wave them and shouting Hosanna. People put coats on the ground to make sure he has a royal entrance. And they scream, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They were right, but they didn't understand yet what was going to happen. The Pharisees and the Sadducees looked to the Romans who were watching this event. They're not happy, and this could go very badly, very quickly. They look at the faces of the ones singing, and they see it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have lost any control over these people. This one man on a donkey, the crowds will follow him anywhere. Jesus then enters the temple, but instead of worshiping, he goes into an angry tirade. He flips over tables, lets animals free, and yells, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have have turned it into a den of robbers. This obviously didn't go over well with the leaders in the temple, and it also didn't go over well with one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, who was the disciple in charge of the money. Jesus and his friends then go for the Passover meal. All over Jerusalem, Jews are having the same meal. They're celebrating the miracle of the Passover. But Jesus looks at his disciples and begins to st- But Jesus looks at his disciples and begins to speak. He told them, "One of you is going to betray me." Everyone is shocked. He then breaks the bread and says his body is going to be broken. He drinks the wine and says his blood is going to be spilled. He says this is the last meal he's going to eat with them before the supper in heaven. And he tells them to continue to do this in memory of him. In memory of him? These words must have brought confusion and horror to his friends. Jesus then goes with his disciples to a garden. And in this garden, he prays. He says, God, if there's any other way, but if not, your will be done. Sin entered into the world in a garden thousands of years before this. And in that garden, a man said, not your will, God, but my will be done. And on this night, Jesus, the son of man, the perfect man, says, not my will, but yours be done. Sin was about to be defeated. And into the garden walks Judas. He kisses the cheek of Jesus as a sign for the guards to come. And they do come and arrest Jesus. Jesus is put on trial at the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is a Jewish court run by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They find Jesus guilty of blasphemy for saying he is God and equal to God. The punishment is death. The Roman law doesn't allow the Sanhedrin to sentence people to death. Only the Roman government can do that. So the Sadducees take Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate, and demand his death. Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus. He's clearly an innocent man. He tries to appease the Sanhedrin by beating Jesus and whipping him. A crowd has gathered now and they are demanding the death of Jesus. Pilate even offers them a choice. He brings Jesus and a man who is guilty of murder named Barabbas to the crowd. Since it's a Jewish holiday, he will release one of these men. The crowd screams, give us Barabbas. Pilate then says, What do you want me to do with Jesus? 
they say, crucify him. The people Jesus loves, the ones he has served, the ones he has touched and healed, that crowd that has come to hear him teach, they now turn on Jesus. Jesus is then stripped naked, taken outside of Jerusalem, and nailed to a cross. We see pictures of Jesus on that cross. We see him beaten, bruised, bleeding, and naked. But it's what we don't see that is the crucial part of the story. The blame for every sin I have ever done went on Jesus. And the blame for every sin you have ever done went on Jesus. The blame and the guilt of every sin ever committed, the vilest, filthiest among us, went on Jesus. There in the crowd as he died, people laughed at him. They mocked him. They spit on him. But one man nailed to the cross next to him believed in him. And Jesus, as he was dying, did what he came to do. He forgave the man's sins and told him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus looked at the crowd and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He said, It is finished. And he died. At that moment, the veil in the temple ripped from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies, this special room was suddenly opened for all to see. We could now enter into God's presence. Everything was different. One of the leaders of the temple knew what had happened. He didn't want Jesus' body thrown into a pile with other crucified men. So he asked Jesus' body to be put into his tomb. Jesus was taken off the cross, wrapped and sent to the tomb. The other leaders in the temple were not happy about that. They said, Jesus said he would die and come back to life. His disciples are going to try and steal the body and say he is alive. So they went back to the governor and asked that the tomb be sealed and guarded. They didn't understand that Jesus is God. And God is stronger than Roman soldiers, stronger than a Roman seal, stronger than a rock, and stronger than death. On Sunday morning, two women came to visit the tomb. And they find it empty. Jesus is alive. In the early morning, there's a violent earthquake. An angel who appears like lightning, dressed in white clothes, comes, rolls away the stone, and then sits on it. The guards are so afraid at this sight, they become paralyzed. Once they're able to move again, they run. So the two women come and find this empty tomb, and the angel tells them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus' resurrection wasn't just his soul. His body came back to life. He appears to the disciples. He eats with them. Thomas touches the scars where the spear had pierced his side and the nails had been driven into them. Jesus met with two other men traveling back home. He eats with them also. He appears to over 5,000 people. He then promises a gift would come and that they were going to go into all the world and preach the good news of Jesus. He promises he will return. And with everyone watching, he ascends into heaven. The crowd stood watching. No one moved. It was silent. It was still. And then they saw someone, something coming back. Was it Jesus? It was an angel. And he says, why are you standing here? Go. This same Jesus is going to come back the same way he left. The crowd heads to Jerusalem, waits for this gift Jesus has promised. And then there's a great wind, which is weird because they're inside of a house. And then there is fire. Fire, the picture of the holiness of God. This time it isn't over the tabernacle. This time they don't have to be ritually pure. This time the fire is over each of them. The Holy Spirit of God is in them. 
They leave and they preach and thousands are saved and the church starts. That river that Ezekiel saw in his dream, God leaving the temple, touching and purifying the earth. Jesus talked about that while he was on earth. On that last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and called out in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow within him. He is speaking about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were later to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But now, on this day, the Spirit had come. The church had been born, and this is her story. That is the first episode in a new podcast coming out this summer called The Church. As you listen to the story, if you have not come to a place where you have turned to Jesus, let me invite you to do that now. The Bible says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that he is God and he alone can forgive your sins. Call out to him, confess you're a sinner and ask him to forgive you. He will touch you, he will cleanse you and you will be part of his mission, the church. For more podcast blogs and videos, check out my website, lauraleesiemens.com.